Hindu gods. Hindu gods. You feel like it? Yeah. Where, yeah. Sh- where should we start? We should start at the top. We should start, we should start at-, at the beginning. We should start at the way Hindus see gods. Okay. Welcome to episode number two of Zazen and the Schmetterlings. Uh, the next three episodes are going to be focused around Hindu mythologies. And what I really want to do with this podcast series is to dive into these stories, these religious ideas or psychological ideas and understand a little bit how we can learn from them, how we can understand ourselves a little bit better, our relationship with the world around us and our relationship with the people around us. And so what I see all these stories as, all these um, different gods in the Hindu in the Hindu beliefs or the Buddhist ideas are humans over hundreds of thousands of years struggling to understand their own relationship with themselves and with, with the people around them and encoding into those different ideas about how we might be able to properly align ourselves and properly connect uh, in, in whatever might be considered a healthy way. And each, each different mythology or each different tradition has a different concept of what, of what the correct path is, but I think we can learn a lot from them all. So uh, in the next few episodes with Ryan, who's an absolutely incredible guy that I met um, in a meditation course in India, uh, we're going to explore what the Hindu gods mean, what, how they're structured, and how we can understand from them what Hinduism is saying about ourselves and what we are trying to tell ourselves through the stories of the Hindu gods. So let's dive in and uh, see what Ryan has to tell us about um, about Hinduism. Yeah. So I think it's helpful. Are you already recording? Mm. Okay. So I think it's helpful to have some some context really quick um, regarding the the Indian you know foundation from where all this came, which is you had the uh, Indus Valley civilization, which was one of the earliest civilizations, um, along with like Mesopotamia, Egypt, and uh, Minos in Crete. Um, and Indus Valley and across India was primarily, um, these are what are called the Dravidian people. And so we happen to be in Tamil Nadu at the moment, um, and these are Dravidian people here, and their language is a Dravidian language, which has nothing to do with Sanskrit. Mm. has nothing to do with Hindi or any of that. Those are all Sanskrit-based languages. And um, so at some point, the Indo-Aryan people came out of the steppes of Central Asia due to climate change um, for, uh, and other reasons, I'm sure. And they came and they brought their gods with them. And they conquered the Indus Valley, and then they established the Vedic culture, is what it's called. And the Indus Valley was up northern India, right? The border yeah, of India right. and Pakistan. Pakistan. Yes. Along and the river there that was called the Hindus or something like that. It's, it's the Indus River. Indus River, that's right. Um, sometimes it's called the Sin, Sindus River. Mm. Um, the region is also called Sindh. Um, but the, the interesting thing here is that the this is when the Vedas were written. And this is why I wanted to bring this up. Because the Vedas are the foundational texts of Hindu Hindu thought. Mm. 
And the reason why that's important is because there's a fundamental shift that happens in Hindu thought, which completely redefines the way that they look at their gods a while later. So, because you have the, uh, the Indo-Aryan people were nomadic pastoral people, cattle herders, horsemen, warriors. And when they brought their gods with them, the Vedic gods, you have Indra, you know, god of thunder and rain, and you have Agni, the god of fire, um, and uh, you have Yama, the lord of death, and uh, various others. Um, also Rudra, the howler, who became equated with Shiva. Oh. So that's, a, that's an interesting thing there. But what is important there is that they were, they were a fundamentally life-affirmative religion. They saw their gods as manifestations of the earth and sky. Mm-hmm. And life was, a, life was a struggle, life was a battle, life was an adventure. That's why they went on to conquer and settle much of you know, Europe and Asia. Mm. Um, and part of that group went down into, into uh, Iran, Iranian Aryan people, those became Zoroastrians, and there's actually a lot of similarities if you look at Zoroastrianism and uh, Vedic Hinduism. Mm. But there, something happened there, which is in India, as opposed to many of these other places, India was a very rich place in terms of its uh, the land's fertility. Mm. And so... As we can see in front of us. Right beautiful trees, mist-laden. Um, so, something changed in India. I'm not sure exactly when, but that the bounty of the land basically allowed them to kind of take, a, take their foot off the gas of life. Whereas in many other places, such as Iran and Europe and you know, the um, the Caucasus Mountain regions and, and all of that, um, Asia Minor, where life was still pretty, they had to really, like, work for it, mm. you know? They maintained a an idea about their gods as being these manifestations of earth and sky and having this very, like, you know, viewing God as being eminent, eminent within the world, and that's how they viewed God. But in India, it changed. In India they began to consider things a little bit differently. And they began to have a very different conception of life itself. Life was no longer an adventure because they weren't traveling. They were settled people. Um, life was no longer this struggle because they had pretty much everything they needed. What time period are we talking? This is like... Um, mm, the Vedas are like 4,000 years old, right? 45,000 years old. Yeah. yeah. This is around that, around that era. A little later, though, because the Vedas, the Vedic culture, eventually kind of just completely combined with, with the original Dravidian culture, and they subsumed certain gods, like, like Rudra became Shiva, and Shiva was this pre-Vedic deity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is actually, this, this is what birthed the mysticism of India, because they began to look on life as, they had the time to consider life, not just live it, 
Mm. And which is really where a lot of cultures really develop. Like when they settle, when they settle into into a place, and they can they can create a culture. They can create like a a scholarly elite as well. Right. Which is when you can really dive into mythology and tell more stories. You have bigger tribes that can kind of merge stories with each other. Totally. Totally. So they began to actually look at life as this is where the idea of unsatisfactory mm. life came about. They began to look on life and they they began to like before it was like, okay, suffer. You suffer in life because it's a struggle. Okay. We can accept that. We can to conquer. Yeah, we can accept that. You you battle with that. That's acceptable. But when you have that luxury of time, they began to see suffering in a much different sense. They began to see suffering as a much more existential thing. And they began to question the human condition. And the gods changed because of that as well. Their views of the gods changed. Um, they began that this is where you first see this conception of, of Maya, Maya being the illusion of the world. And they began to have a very negative view of life, actually. When I say negative, I don't necessarily mean like sad or depressed, more so like, like life is unsatisfactory. Life is a denial of life. In a a denial of life. In something, a something to transcend. Exactly, exactly. So the gods changed with that. Um, and you had the idea of um, Brahmin. And I don't mean Brahmin as in the priestly caste, and I don't mean Brahma as in the creator god. I mean Brahmin, which is essentially supreme reality. Mm. The idea that there is a transcendent supreme reality and that there is Maya overlaid on top of it that keeps it obscured. Mm. So we, ha we cannot fundamentally experience the true nature of life or reality. We're, we're, blocked, from, we're blocked from that. Mm. And then the deities are essentially emanations from that place. They're ways of relating to that, that place. Brahman is, is similar to the, the conception of, of like any sort of formless God. It's like God beyond all attributes, God beyond all qualities and descriptions. Um, so the gods are no longer gods of this world. They're gods of a world beyond that we don't have, that is obscured from us. Yes. So rather than having these, these nature-based gods of people who are living really embedded in nature, you have these gods of, of a metaphysical world, of people that are, feel like they're trapped in nature. And then right. it's something to something to see through in order to reach a different world. Exactly. It's basically the transition. Exactly. And, and I mean, you have some overlap there because you have a deity like like Shiva. Uh, we well, now we can talk about I guess the um, we can talk now we can talk talk hierarchical stuff. We can talk uh, the, the holy trinity, the the, the, the pantheon, and um, yeah, this conception of of Shiva, Vishnu, and Brahma as being like kind of like the, the idea of the Godhead. And uh, of course, different sects will, will say, okay, um, well, Vishnu is actually the supreme reality or Shiva is the supreme reality. This is, this is uh, kind of besides the point for our conversation, but it's, it's worthy to note. Um, if, 
if uh, our listeners go and and look into that. Mm. Um, so this idea that you have a creator deity, and the creator deity is actually he creates, and then he is essentially from that point on he's no longer needed. Mm. Um, Brahma created the world and then kind of stepped back from it. And then you have Vishnu, who is the, the god of preservation, the god of maintenance, the god of life-sustaining. Mm. And then you have Shiva, and Shiva is very interesting because he's a, his origins are a pre-Vedic deity. Um, and many people believe that um, yoga is actually also pre-Vedic and it's associated with Shiva. Mm. Um, and then he's mixed with this very fearsome deity called Rudra of, of the Vedic gods. So kind of god of um, wild places and such. Um, so Shiva is probably, in my opinion, the most interesting um, of them. Um, the destroyer. The right? destroyer, yeah. I think a more accurate term, though, is transformer. Mm. He's the transformer um, and represents the transformation i mean on one level he's the the transformation of the world of time itself like everything's always changing everything is impermanent but he's also this um transcendental deity who's depicted as you know meditating on top of mount kailash for 10,000 years at a time and he's so he's the adi yogi he's the first um great meditator mm. and so he's also the deity who's representative of the of the the transformation of the self, Shiva is the true self. Shiva is the Brahman, the the supreme reality. And so here also we have so we have these three gods, and we say that one's the creator of the universe, one's the maintainer of the universe, one's the destroyer. But I mean, also what you hear a lot, and I wonder how how far back this dates, if this was the original intention. But but really, this is on the macro scale level all the way down to the micro level where in each, in our lives, each thing that gets created is created through Brahma. Each, each thing that gets sustained is through Vishnu. And each thing that just gets destroyed is through Shiva, all the way down to the micro level of, of, like, of like a blade of grass when it turns from a seed into a blade of grass. It, the seed gets destroyed, so that Shiva destroying it. But in the same breath, in the same moment, um, it's, Brahma is creating a blade, blade of grass. And so it's destruction for creation. It's this cycle that is it's basically an idea of, of the cyclic nature of the universe. And they're yeah. not actually, even though we have these three gods, psychologically we kind of understand them as, as the one, as the one God, yeah. as the one yeah. idea of they are, they always lead to each other. There's no Shiva without, a, without Brahma coming in right afterwards and with a Vishnu in between. So it's a constant totally. cyclic nature of everything. Totally. So... That, I think, is actually a, you'd see that in, in mysticism and, in, in, and also in like traditional mysticism as well as modern interpretation. On the ground level, though, in, in many places in India, um, people do treat them. I mean, they might have a conception of like, okay, this is, this is uh, all, all one, right? Um, but they very much do treat them as individual deities. It's interesting. Uh, we really don't talk about Brahma very much. No, because he's uh, there's actually myths regarding that, in which why he he's not um, worshipped. 
in India, um, basically at all. There, I believe there's only one Brahma temple in all of India. Um, and this is regarding this story in which uh, uh, Shiva uh, transforms himself into an infinite column or pillar of light. And then he says to Vishnu and Brahma, um, find the end of me. And so they go in opposite directions to find the end of this pillar of light. And then they both come back and uh, Vishnu says, Lord, I could not find the end of you. And Brahma says, no, no, I found the end. But he lied. Mm. The creator lied. And so... What's the, um, what's the idea about that there, do you think? The idea there, it's, it's interesting. I think that it, it could potentially um, be connected to this idea that uh, reality itself, that the world that is created is in, in essence flawed, is in essence tainted. So it's from, a found, like the, from the foundation, the, 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 the deity that represents the creation of the earth lied. Mm. And is jealous of, is jealous of the destructive force that destroys its creations in some kind of way. Perhaps, and yeah. wants to undermine that force in some way. Right. So this is this might be kind of part of the root cause of the idea that the world itself is in, insufficient. Mm. Um, and basically you have the so you have Shiva, you know, who is that he's the representative of the of the of the true self, the the, the supreme reality and all of that. And then you have Vishnu, and we shouldn't forget Vishnu because Vishnu is is probably on equal footing in terms of uh, reverence in India, and he's there to basically keep humanity from destroying itself, and he's there to remind us how to live life. Yeah. Um, because unlike Shiva and unlike Rama. Uh, Vishnu comes to the earth in the form of of a human being uh, in the forms of they call them avatars. Um, so what are these what are these avatars like what what metaphysically is that and what what psychologically is this avatar are these avatars are they actually the gods or are they or are they l like lesser forms of the gods or are they just like no are they limited or are they no no so they're like I think the way of, of, of reconciling this idea that the world is insufficient and the world is is a veil, right? But that but that truth, higher truth, can come into the world and is is also still imminent in the world. So you have Krishna and Rama and the various other incarnations of Vishnu coming in into the form of a human being. And is God incarnate? In order to provide guidance in the time that they come in. Exactly. They, they come in kind of for a lifetime, don't they? Mm -hmm. Is the idea. And they they succeed each other. So there's all these emanations, and they interact with the avatars of of the other of the other gods as well. So you also have avatars of Brahma and and Shiva coming into the world. So not really. Um, definitely not with Brahma. Yeah. Um, Shiva. That's actually. There's later stuff. The, the Avatar doctrine is very unique to the Vishnu sect. Um, but then later on, you see some of that being added on into the into the Shiva canon as well. Mm. Um, but that's a that's a later addition. Originally, Shiva was not like that. Um, 
which is really representative of Vishnu's role in the world as a maintainer. Mm-hmm. Like he, he he has reason to to appear in the world to help the world, whereas the other two are not. Basically, are not he brings balance. Things. Basically, that that's what Vishnu represents. Is he's mm-hmm. balance between creation and destruction. Um, which is interesting because I always found Vishnu to be the most complicated god because it seems like you really just have creation and destruction. Like that cycle, each creation immediately has destruction and then immediately has creation in it on the micro and macro level. This, this idea of maintenance doesn't really, it's kind of an illusion in a way that anything is ever static. And mm. so, so then really like to see Vishnu as, as like to see Br- Brahma and Shiva as like a pair and then Vishnu as, as, as a balancing force between that kind of unique pair is a really um, interesting idea, I think. Yeah, definitely. He's um, yeah. I think maintenance perhaps is is um, perhaps a a not an entirely full view of what he's what he is. It's more about the bringer of balance between those two forces. Mm. Um, and that basically, when when things go out of balance, is when he comes. That's the idea within Hinduism. Is when in the Bhagavad Gita he explicitly states. Like this is what I do is when righteousness wanes and wickedness rises, I come to the world, I make for myself a body, I am born to a human woman, and I I bring balance. Mm. That's what I do. And I show human beings that in this world of illusion, one can find truth. Mm. One can, in fact, find truth. Follow me and you will find the truth. All roads eventually lead to me. Is one of the, I think, one of the most profound statements in the Gita. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of what he's, is, is he's reconciling this, this idea of, okay, so the world is insufficient. It's full of suffering and it's, and it seems to be this, this actual like blockade between human experience and higher truth. There's like this big, you know, veil, and we can't pierce it. And then God, in the in Vishnu sense, um, comes to the world in human form and, and shows us there is actually a path in this world you can you can walk that will lead you to that higher truth. And I think that that perhaps is um, psychologically, I. I uh, what what do you, what do you think of that? I think that that sounds to me like really the core of what you're saying, the transformation of beings that are in the world to beings that that are trying to transcend the world in some way. Um, because it's Vishnu is about showing you, in in the way you've described it, showing you your path to the metaphysical, to something right. beyond. Um, and so he's not he's not there to show you how to how to reap your crops or how to conquer the weather or how to how to how to conquer your tri- the tribes around you, or this kind of stuff, which would have been the the original idea of these nomadic people. Right. Um, so he's so really the representation of Shiva and Brahma, the cre- uh, 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 the creator and the destroyer, are kind of like these ideas about about the ontological nature or the existence of the world, and and Vishnu really embeds the the change in psyche of of, of humankind from uh, beings that are that are that are survival to beings that are contemplatory. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's that's for me like I think really the crux of like so much of of spiritual um, 
spiritual ideas these days, which is most spiritual traditions these days are about connecting to divine. Um, They're not about, to a degree, they have these aspects, these rituals on how to live um, and how to live in the world. But most of those are actually how to live in the world so that you can connect to the divine. So Vishnu represents um, a shift in a shift in doing for the sake of survival to doing for the sake of um, of of transcendence, connection, totally. kind of stuff. Because it is it is definitely um, a big part of like at least with Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita. I can't really speak much on the Mahabharata because I haven't read it, but I have read the Gita. And a big thing that he talks about is 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 li- is living life. It's like not it's the Gita is not a manual on how to become an ascetic and go and hide out in the mountains to find uh, oneness with God. It's about basically how to how to do your duty and in life. And through that, how in in a, in a way in which that will end up in leading you to the divine. Mm. So karma yoga is a big big aspect in in uh, the Gita, basically dedicate your acts to me. Yeah. Like whatever happens, that's up to me. But just do what you do to the best that you can do it yeah. and remember me, you know. And uh, there's more to it than that. But I, I definitely think it is uh, an interesting idea to the, that he's like the reconciliation between um, between this conception of an of a, a world that is lacking and a world that is higher, that it's like, okay, so we can live in this world. Because otherwise you're just overwhelmed with essentially like pessimism. Like this world is is uh, illusion and there's no escape. Mm. There's no escape. I know that there's a world of higher truth and I can't experience it. And so therefore I'm going to be very unhappy because I just, I'm looking all around me and it's, and it's, it's insufficient, it's yeah. suffering. And Vishnu is saying, no, 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 no. Yes, there is illusion. And yes, there is higher truth. But here, I am here. And I represent the human being that is capable of, of living the life in the world and reconnecting with that divine. So it's like, it's okay. It, it's a way to like kind of, you know, see those two seemingly difficult um, worldviews and bring them together. Yeah, in a way. And it's like, also like, in in Hinduism we talk in Hinduism. <laughs> there goes your ginger lemon honey. Um, in Hinduism we talk a lot about how these gods aren't actually, um, these gods aren't actually external gods. They're more they're more like conceptualizations of our mind, which we'll see a lot more as we dive into them. Like they're aspects of of ourselves. And so for in in this kind of trinity we've got here, we've got this this aspect of our soul that understands that everything is cyclic and transient, represented by the consecration and destruction, which is parabled by, by the yin-yang and all these other ideas of order and chaos and, and this kind of stuff. Right. And then we have, this, um, and we have this yearning, this yearning for a connection with the divine. And it's very interesting that, that Vishnu comes in human form. He comes in human form as if to say, it's, it's not, it's achievable. Like you, you can be a human and, and find the way. And I am your inner. I am. I am your inner human that can can lead you um, into into this connection with oneness and into transcendence to the metaphysical. So it's like the aspect of the avatars of Vishnu are the the aspects of ourself that guide us, our our inner gurus and our the um, inner guru totally the inner guru. So even in every single story where we have any 
any avatar of Vishnu coming in or any child of 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 um of Shiva or however it might be, all these aspects are really aspects of ourself um and their understandings that we contain these capacities and their reminders they're first of all descriptions of our own existence in ways that uh, help us under, understand um com complex uh, emotions and interactions um, in our world that we don't yet necessarily understand. So they tease out those and compartmentalize them and tell, tell us how they interact with each other. And then in the other, in the other aspect there, they're the way they're describing the way that we can then reconcile those different contradictory elements. Totally, totally. Yeah. And how we can find, we can find basically a path in, in the terms of, of, of the Tao and this kind of stuff, like through it all. And yeah, what's so like um, very interesting is with um say rama prince rama who is another incarnation of, of vishnu rama is really he's, he's he doesn't give teachings like krishna does krishna has a conversation with arjuna and arjuna has a bunch of uh conflict internal conflict and, and tumult and he asks questions and krishna gives responses wonderful dharmic responses and rama is more so a man of action. He has to save his wife. And so he's actually a representative of, of the ideal human who does his duty, who is just. But what is so interesting about that is is he makes a mistake. So wait, backing up, Rama is, is first an emanation, uh, an avatar of Vishnu. Of Vishnu. Is he one of the early avatars of Vishnu? He, uh, so there's actually, so there's, uh, there's, there's 10? Yeah. 10? And, uh, Rama and Krishna are the later ones. There's earlier ones in which he takes partial human, partial animal form. So there's like, I don't remember all the names, but there's like one in which he's a man with the head of a lion and one in he's the head, the head of a boar. And I don't know those those stories as well, but um, but I can speak on Krishna and, Rama, Krishna and Rama a little bit. So, well, just just to give a bit of a structure. So we have... We have these. We have Vishnu. We have avatars that ex that pop up in different parts of time. Yeah. And then we also have we have these ideas of the um of of the masculine and feminine like kind of emanations of these of these, right? Yes. So is that with all? Is that with Brahma, Vishnu, and and Shiva? And is it also with the avatars? They all got their individual emanations. Yes. Like yes. their wife, the husband-wife team. Yes. Of? Totally. So of course, with um, Shiva, we have uh, Parvati, yeah. um, who is also called Shakti. Um, she's kind of the ultimate goddess, um, but then you know you have um, Lakshmi and Vishnu. I believe it's Lakshmi and Vishnu. Yeah. And then Saraswati and Brahma. Um, and then with all the avatars, um, he has a, a feminine, you know, companion. He has the the feminine counterpart that is the other aspect of him um, present in the world. And and uh, so with Krishna, it's uh, Radha and Krishna. And then you have uh, Sita and Brahm, and and then, and then also these have can have children, right? So then you also have kind of right. God God figures coming out of children of these pairs. Totally, totally. And so basically, your entire the entire landscape of your Hindu gods is these three main ones with their with their with the avatars of Vishnu, with the masculine and feminine versions of these different of these different um, gods, uh, which are really and it's really not like. There is the main, the masculine is the main. It's really like the masculine and feminine are parts of the same. We see, we call, we call the main one Shiva, but really, it's like Parvati is 
is is like hand in hand. It's a, it's, yeah, it's a component. They often would say that um, Shiva, Shiva, if um, Shiva is the supreme reality, and he would not be able to to move within the world without Shakti, because Shakti is power that is imminent in yeah. the world, and through Shakti, Shiva makes himself known. Um, but I do want to backtrack really, like I want to go to talk about Rama really quick because I think that this is a, a, actually a, a key thing is like, yes, we have these, um, we have God descending into human form to reconcile this idea of the insufficiency of the world and this world of higher truth and kind of the bridge between that and represented in this, in this human form. But this is like what makes it so interesting in the Hindu, uh, in the Hindu uh, scriptures is that they're, they're not, they may be I, like, Rama is the ideal human, but he's still human. Yeah. He's still, he's God, but he's also still human. And so he, they're capable of making mistakes. They're capable of, of making pretty big mistakes, actually. So in the Ramayana, after he's, you know, saved his wife, he throws her out. Mm. He throws her out into the jungle because she's pregnant and he's not sure if it's his. What? <laughs> He's not sure if it's his. And this is like a, um, you know, kind of like, you know, so in, in this sense, Ram actually fell, fell prey to this, you know, I'm, I'm this ruler and I can't have my people thinking that, you know, perhaps my, my wife was impregnated by Robin and, you know, I, I don't want to appear that way or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. So he throws her out. So it's pride. Pride, yeah. And so, like, I think that this is, I'm not going to talk too much about like the like why that is, but I do think that psychologically that's a that's important because it's it's like if we set if these gods have been set up as just completely perfect, you know the avatars if they had been completely perfect, then it would be it's like an ideal that we can never achieve. But because they are human, because they are capable of making mistakes, even pretty, pretty bad mistakes, mm. uh, we can we can relate relate to them, and and see okay, this is this is possible for for me, you know, to do because I know that I make mistakes, but I also know that I'm capable of of being very just and righteous and 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 uh, cultivating the skill of my mind and my heart, you know. So there's a lot there's a lot there because it's like saying in the one hand we all are divine and perfect and in the other hand even the divine and the perfect has the capacity for to to step astray and they still have the capacity to bring themselves back totally. um back to the center and what we what we're learning from these gods is that is that we don't create perfect gods we don't create perfect idols even in our human world we don't look up we don't look up to a, a teacher of ours and say and, and, and try to try to see the flaws in them so that we can have them doubt in our mind whether or not they should be a good teacher or not. We look at their flaws as things that we can also learn from and that and that right. and we understand that everyone's on a journey and that um and that people hold parts of truth within them and that we can take those parts and we don't have to necessarily we don't have to we don't have to discount truth that we see in our lives because there's some kind of part of it which um which we find to be in, for want of a better word, perverted or misguided or whatever it might be. So it's a compassion towards ourselves, um, co generating compassion, saying that even the divine, the, div the emanations of the divine 
are fallible. And so we can be fallible. And, and, and in the first step, we have compassion for ourselves and we say, all right, we're not perfect. We are human. Even the emanations of God have, have these, these, fallible these fallible natures. But in the same breath, we also say there is, there is, um, there's a path, there's redemption. And, you, and that redemption is also coming from within. So even though we have imperfection, in the same hand, we also have the medicine to give to ourselves. So we can, as far astray as we ever get, we always have the inner power to bring ourselves back and to find our way home into totally. the place that we want to be. Totally. Yeah. I completely agree with that. Um, and that's, that's really, I think, the, the, the crux of when we talk about mystical mysticism with, within the Hindu tradition and, and these gods um, is that external reverence and worship is good like they don't they don't say this is a bad thing this is a good thing and this is what you see across india but at its deepest level it's actually that is a so like in the bhakti movement which is a kind of a medieval era time it was like a reformation within hinduism in which you know people the common people were fed up with the hierarchical structures of the priestly caste and all this um, you had many saints, especially coming from the low castes, who were having direct experience of the divine in the world, and they basically came and they said, look, you don't need to go to the temple necessarily. You don't need a priest to tell you how to live. All you need is a, uh, a tanpura, in, in their, a tanpura being a, an, in, it was an instrument hmm. similar, to a, uh, similar to a sitar, but... Um, all you need is a tampura, a song, and and love in your love in your heart, mm. and that will bring you to God. So at that core, it's like worship. External worship is actually this path that is going to bring you through love into direct communion with God, mm. into direct communion with the One, and that's really what it's about. It's about it, it, it's it's an abandonment into into devotion and love in which your your lower self becomes completely consumed and through that is uncovered your your true self which is which is divine so like that's that's like the reminders they basically remind reminders of our internal divine in a way right yeah so they remind us of 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 the way we could be or the way the way we could move through difficulty or the way we right. could move through in a struggle. Or whatever. Like what you said about inner guru is really that mm. the inner guru is the, like I think the core of all of this is that, is that ultimately when, when a, an Agori Baba who's a, an ascetic um, sadhu of India, it, he, he seeks to, through bhakti, through devotion and love, he seeks to worship Kali. And Kali is this, um, incarnation of, of Parvati. She's a fearsome goddess. She's the goddess who slays your demons. So they worship her and then they identify themselves as Shiva. Mm. Shiva worshiping his wife. Mm. And so there's a big aspect there where it's, it's, it's not just about worship of this external deity, but it, there's a big, big, in fact, I think probably the most important part is the is is a switch in identity, a switch in identification, and you begin to see yourself more and more in in direct connection with with God until there's nothing left but God. That's really what Hinduism is is telling us is possible. 
is that you can uh, go through knowledge or love and either way if you go through that truly then you will arrive at oneness that's really what they're yeah. saying so it's, practice it's, practices is about devotion which is about love right right so any kind of ritualistic practice is not like in other in other in other traditions we might find as as a way of um as a way of placating placating or or just a way of being controlled or as a cultural thing it's really as, as about about a path well, it is to that too. Through action. It, it is that too. But I would say that the, the major change happened with the Bhakti movement in, in Maharashtra. And the Bhakti movement is the movement of devotional devotional yes, action. That it's it's that of, that it of ritual brings it to the individual. And they they were not about rituals. Like when I said all you need is a tampoor and a song, that's what most of them were doing. Most of these great saints, Tukaram and uh Mirabai and um and Tulsidas and, and many others. Uh, they were like Ravi Das, great one, um, and they're all they all have one wonderful poetry, and that's what they would do is they would write these songs and they would sing them. Mm. They would sing these songs, and it's just like this one person on their own, you know. In di like they're they're saying cut all the bullshit, you know. We don't need we don't need structure. We don't need we don't need priests. We don't like, and of course that's still present within modern Hindu thought. I mean, that never went away, but this was a huge shift. I think it's culturally, effectively, it's effectively mysticism, like we might see in the Sufis or or everything. It's right. like it's like the individual, or even in, in the or, in the uh, even in the Christian tradition in the medieval ages with Saint John of the Cross and, and mm. Teresa of, of Avila. You know, it's like it's about the individual's direct relationship with the divine, and through that relationship we transform into the divine. And I think that's a really powerful idea is that, is that the way, and a lot of that, we've talked about this so much the last like, couple of weeks, like the way we transform the world is by transforming ourselves. And then that transforms the world around us. Totally. And so like the connection to the divine doesn't come from us creating social structures and rituals and all these things which have the potential to be corrupted by, by individuals that are running them that, that haven't yet put their own affairs in order, their own internal, right. their, own, their own relationship with their world, their own relationship with their dark sides of their mind, their struggles, their relationship with the people around them. And so Peterson has, has that, that classic idea of clean your room that we've talked about a lot, right. which is like you begin, by, you begin by understanding that the divine is you and you need to represent it first, and that's the way you transform the world. And, and once you transform yourself into, into the divine, then the action naturally emanates from that and the transformation in the world happens around you. It's not the action isn't something which we think about and we do. We don't look at the world and say it's broken. How am I going to fix it? We look at the world and we say maybe it's broken. Then we look internally and we turn ourselves into beings that will help the world. Mm. Um, we turn ourselves into, into, into compassionate friends, into, into listeners. And, 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 and the starting point of that is turning ourselves into compassionate friends to ourselves. Totally. Having, like dealing with our own shame, dealing with our own fears, dealing with our own dreams and and illusions that we get stuck in and once we can once we can understand that then that's the way we help the people around us is to be our inner guru and that transforms us into into a teacher for other people and it's not something that we cultivate we don't begin by cultivating um a, a being that affects the world around us uh, we really we really take ownership and that's what it's about it's about culpability and ownership and of, then of at that i completely agree i completely agree and i think that it's important to to note that 
especially in the in the um, forms of Krishna and Rama, these were not, you know, ascetic figures. You know, these were not figures that were off in the jungle. They were in the world, mm. and that's what they were telling us. You you need to be in the world. That's how you're going to affect change within yourself and with the outer world. That's how you're going to bring about your inner awakening, and through your inner awakening, you'll bring awakening to the rest of the world. Mm. So, like, that's the big thing about karma yoga um, that really is is um, idealized in the form of Krishna. Um, yeah, devotional action. Okay. Devotional action. Like, really, Krishna is the avatar of action. Like, that's really what he's all about is it's, yeah, you need to be in the world. I'm not telling you, like, like, Arjuna is going through this whole identity crisis and this whole conflict because he's got to fight this war. He's got to fight this war against these people. This and on the other side, on on the on the side of his opponents, he recognizes many people that are like part of his extended family, people that were his teachers, even, people that he loves and respects, people with much dignity. But he needs to do this because this is like his his role to play. Mm. He's like, it would be better if I didn't do this. And, and Krishna, in fact, begins with the idea, and then leads in, begins with the idea of like, no, this is your role. This is your role to play in the world. You have a duty to fulfill. And if you don't fulfill this duty, then people, people will lose faith in that in the ideal of fulfilling one's duty because you kind of are this are this paragon, mm. Arjuna. You are this this people look up to you. People look up to you, and if you if you don't take this opportunity, then this will this will have a, a, a major effect. And then he goes further and gives this exegesis on on the the ways in which that we can, you know, basically reconcile our duty with higher purpose. And when things seemingly seem to be like, you know, this doesn't seem to be the um, like I, I don't know what to make of this, and Krishna is saying, you know, essentially, this is your role, and play the role, but also remember, remember that I am here with you, and remember that everything has a reason, everything has has meaning. So there's this is not just some blind thing happening. Mm. Um, so in, in, in basically summary of this entire thing, it's like we. We were creatures of action, creatures of survival, of living, of, of community, and we transform into creatures that are looking for transcendence. We understand that the capacity for transcendence is within us. We also understand that the that the that that we're fallible, and in the, the in the in the beginning, the way we we basically structure our mind from the ground up is by understanding that in the first point, we are perfect. We are the divine. We are all this together. And then we understand. Then from that place, the place of understanding our imperfection, we don't see ourselves as incomplete in any way. We then look at how ways in which internally we find conflict or what we might have before called imperfection, and we understand that we we have compassion towards that. First and not just not just that it's that we need to have compassion towards it, but that those very things that we see as being imperfect or obstacles to the path. Through through the through the path, those very things become transformed and become allies on the path. Yes. 
So they're not actually, they're not actually, we re-understand what it means to have, to have flaws. We understand flaws as, as paths through, through which to connect deeper or whatever it might right. be, journeys deeper into ourselves. So we understand that. And then we also understand that, and then from there, from that place of, of inner understanding, of, of acceptance, of compassion, of integration, of, of yin and yang, of good and bad, of all this within us, we then go about harnessing our inner Vishnu, our inner teacher, our inner guru, to um, basically reconcile these things. And we learn from the, from, the, from the emanations of God and the stories, different ways in which we might go about doing that in a way um, of grace. And then from that, right. once, once we've transformed ourselves in this way of grace, we then also learn from these, uh, from karma yoga, from devotional action, that we then spread this through. We don't do this and sit in a cave, but this is not about an inner transformation. This is an inner transformation to transform the world. And yeah. so then we, we take that and we move out into the world um, and, we, and we have this, exactly the same things we've cultivated to ourselves. We then do that with the people around us. Complete acceptance that everyone, every moment around us is completely perfect as it is. The most difficult situations, the most difficult people, everything is all perfect. And then we have compassion. We see them as divine. We see ourselves as divine. Um, we see ourselves as all connected. And then we harness our inner, our inner teachers to basically move into the world and reconcile and balance things that we see as um, as being out of balance, but with the understanding that that the balance, the imbalance isn't bad, but, no, but in the end, balance is good. In fact, so, the, the 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 situations like teaching teachings come in many forms. The teachings of of if you want to use this word, the one, you know, the teachings of the one take the guise of mother, father, daughter, brother, you know, uh, sister. Um, takes the guise of, of strangers, of lovers, of, of, of enemies. All of these are bringing us to a deeper awareness of the true nature of, of ourselves in the world. Um, By the way, guys, feel free to interject whenever you want with any ideas. You want to hear? Because <laughs> I'd love any, any other stories and stuff, so yes. And I really feel that the, you know, we talked about this in, in um, one of the previous conversations, um, but I feel like this, this integration of something that we might see as a flaw. So the, the big thing, a big thing in, in many um, spiritual traditions, especially in the East, is we encounter the problem of the mind. We say the mind is actually what's keeping us from our direct perception of, of truth. The mind is this screen that is it's filtering out all of that and leading us into a maze that is very easy to get lost in. And so we think, oh, I have to, I have to, um, I have to destroy the mind. I have to annihilate it. I have to get rid of it. I, and many traditions actually say this. Or at least separate myself. From separate it. myself from the mind, or 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 um and many traditions would go even farther to say not just separation but destroy the mind mm. that this is actually not this is this is something that is needs to be completely abandoned but this is it's either evil it's either it's either evil or it's maya the illusion itself right it's either the veil to be removed or it's something which is actually a negative force which which turns us into basically beasts right um and so but and this i think you know we talked about um the Homi Hanuman mm. before, but it's it's worthy of noting here in this conversation as well is that Hanuman is is the very like embodiment of of when one 
doesn't reject our perhaps animalistic nature or the mind itself um some of these more basic principles of our of our of our humanity so we're dive, to, dive into the Hanuman story Let's yeah yeah so like the the you know we we seek to like we're basically saying you know like like we're incomplete we're we're like there's aspects of our nature that are that that need to go we need to cut those out but in fact like the way i take hanuman is that he's in fact a refutation of that uh, of that premise wow 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 what an incredibly powerful conversation to start off our discussion on the hindu mythology with ryan there and i think the most powerful thing that i found from ryan was not only his depth of detail and recollection on the specific hindu stories but also his ability to in parallel understand how the people and the culture evolved and how they pulled these stories through with them as their circumstances and their relationship with the earth and divinity around them evolved so you can really see their psychological and um, and philosophical evolution occur through the stories themselves and these particular ones are great just looking at the basic structure of this kind of godhead or trinity as you might you might think of it um, because what they really tell us is is the fundamental idea of yes in the hindu mythology we've got tons of different gods and they're all supposed to be representative of different aspects of ourselves and different stories and, and ways we can deal with different uh, struggles or disharmonies within ourselves but at the very top we're talking here about the very nature of the universe about order and chaos destruction and creation and about dualism and about the correct understanding so from here, from this grounding point of understanding the nature of the world, we're going to then dive down into an understanding of, of ourselves and the different components of ourselves. So in the next couple of episodes, we're going to dive a lot deeper into, into some of the specific stories of some of the main Hindu gods. The first one we'll be dealing with is Hanuman, and Hanuman is the, the monkey god, for anyone who doesn't know. And his story is super fascinating, all about the mind and the heart and how to align those correctly. And then in the next episode, we'll dive into the story of Ganesh, who's the elephant god. And he's probably one of the most worshipped gods in Hinduism. And his story, his origin story, is absolutely amazing. It's all, about, uh, it's all about remembrance and our relationship with divinity and understanding who we truly are, not forgetting. And so I'm really excited to have, have everyone on board for this, whoever's here listening. Um, I'm coming to you right now from Cambodia, from Vagabond Temple. Uh, in this yoga meditation retreat, absolutely incredible place that I'm working for the next few months. So if you have any, any ideas, any feedback, any different interpretations of these stories, uh, any, any particular things they triggered for you, please send me a message or something. I'd love to hear and um, I'm super excited to bring these stories to you guys and my particular understanding of them and those of uh, and understanding of the people that I meet. So sending love all around the world. Mwah. Peace.